morning. That's right, amen. So good to see you. So good to have you gathering with us online. If that is where you are this morning, we're thankful um, again. And I want to say, echoing uh, Pastor Kyle, just happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. We are, uh, of course, grateful to be able to celebrate uh, you. And um, as I've said many times, being a dad is uh, such a joy uh, to me. And, and so um, getting to celebrate uh, this day, it's it's it's. Kind of, I mean, I would say it's like a birthday, but it's better because it's, my, you know, celebrating one of my favorite things, which is being a dad. And so um, what a joy it is. And as um, you saw perhaps on the screen, uh, on the slides, we are beginning a new series and a study um, in the book of Amos. And that is uh, obviously a book that perhaps um, we might not as be, be as familiar with. It's not uh, a book that we think of all the time when we think of all the Bible studies that we might have, have been a part of. Um, and uh, as I uh, jokingly said last week, perhaps you hear Amos and the first thing that comes to your mind are his cookies. And uh, that is not at all the Amos of the Bible. Um, and, and so uh, we're going to learn who Amos was a little bit. We actually don't know a lot about him, but we are going to hear his powerful words, the words of God delivered to his people through the prophet Amos. You know, as I sat back and we considered all that's going on around us, as, as Pastor Matt alluded to, um, and I don't have time uh, nor the energy right now to list everything, just all of the chaos that we see going on in our world, but I do know that we are inundated with just news and talking points and opinions and perceptions uh, um, and, and then solutions to all of those problems that come and look a million different ways, and um, those are all the things that are going outside in the world. I, I have no no idea to a certain extent what might be going on in your own heart, all of the personal things. So you take all of the external situations or issues in the world and you add on the weight of what you might be feeling in your own lives. And it is easy and it's probably um, true of most of us, I would expect, in this room or wherever we might be that we just feel exhausted. We just are worn out by everything that is going on around us. And regardless of where we fall on different solutions to all our problems. By the way, I, if you want to go back and listen to last week's message, I talked about the fact that as we consider all of those things, those are secondary issues, not things that should divide us or cause us to fight, but uh, we, we are all aiming for the same thing, I believe, and at least most Christians are. But we can at least agree on two feelings and thoughts. This is what I hear over and over again, and I see it. We can say, and we say to ourselves as we look at all of the chaos in the world, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Let's go home. We're pleading with him to return and take us to the Father. And then we also might be thinking, and this is another rightful thought, if we're wise, what are you saying to us now, God? What should we be learning? As we've lived through all of this turmoil if we haven't paused to consider what God is trying to say, and I say even trying, God doesn't try anything, God just does. So what God is saying as he leads us through and we deal with pandemic and all of the other situations, if that hasn't gotten our attention, I don't know what God might use to get our attention. I don't know what in your life might cause this. And I, you know, it's funny, thinking back to the early days of 2020, 
Just those few weeks or a couple months ago when the pandemic first began, there was lots of conversations about getting back to those things that were most important, learning lessons that we needed to learn and, you know, tearing down idols. We were all, you know, there's a lot of conversation about those things, that God was getting those less important things out of the way. And then at least in our state here in the state of Texas and around the country, as some of the life has begun to come back to normal, how quickly have we forgotten just Two months ago, the things that we said that we thought this might be some lessons, these might be important truths that we would hold on to, we oft, how quickly we forget, just like the Israelites of the Old Testament. And so that's why we're going to begin and we're going to study this book of Amos. See, Amos was a shepherd called to be a prophet to speak the very hard truths, the realities of the world to God's people. The truth that God was not pleased with his people because they had lost their way. They had lost track of who God had called them to be and their lives had gone astray because of that. Amos deals with abuse of power in the social realm and he deals with compromise to paganism in the religious realm. Those are the two primary issues that he deals with. And these two sins were serious to God. They were egregious to God. And so he sends Amos to go to his children and to tell them to stop it to change their ways. So as we open up this book, let's give you just a little bit of a background on Amos so we can not get him confused with the cookie man. Amos is part of what is known as the minor prophets. Now, they're not minor prophets because they're less than or that their message was insignificant or anything like that, but they are written, these are smaller books, smaller in, uh, in terms of length of, of, of what is given. So that's why they're often considered minor, is the, the length of what is spoken. But these prophets are given a very specific word, whereas the great prophets like Isaiah cover a broad spectrum of God's truth and teaching God's people in a, a certain way. These prophets of the minor prophets, they're usually addressing a significant and in, in, in one or two issues at a time, as I just said, with Amos. We don't know a lot about his background. We, we know his name, the root of his name, Amos, means burden bearer. And very often in the Old Testament, the names that are given to the people of God relate to their calling, what God would call them to do. And so it fits well with his message that he comes. He carries the burden of delivering this hard truth to God's people, a truth that needed to be heard to change, to rebuke, to correct their ways. His reference by name only in this book. We don't see his name in any other part of the Bible. They don't reference, this book does not reference any of his family members or anything like that. We don't know much about him. We know that he is from an area called Tekoa in the southern kingdom. If you remember kings where the kingdoms are divided, you have the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he is from the southern kingdom. And outside of that, we're not told a lot about him. One of the things that this teaches us is that the message from God is more important than the messenger. I pray that you would remember that all the days of your life, that the messenger, sometimes I am called and as a pastor, as a preacher, to call to deliver the message, yes, but it's not more important. We are, I am an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and not all of our elders hold that mantle. But the message is what is what mo most critical for us to hear and to learn. Now, we do learn a little bit about Amos, that he more than likely dealt in agriculture. 
We don't know exactly for sure, either a farmer, some believe more of a shepherd. By the way, when we hear shepherd, that was, he was more than likely a shepherd. Shepherds were not herdsmen. We think of shepherd and we think the guys walking around in Bethlehem, you know, going to see baby Jesus. That's kind of our reference to shepherd, sort of the mental picture. But very often the shepherds were those that owned all of the herds and they would send them out to be cared for by herdsmen. And so perhaps Amos was in a bit of a position of wealth and ownership, whether he owned some land or owned the uh, the herd that he uh, took care of. We also know, based on what he teaches us as he gets to chapter 7, that he's very aware of the day that he lived in. He's very, he's up to speed on the news and events of the world. He can converse well with a broad spectrum of people. He understands what it looks like to deal with individuals and how to communicate. And so, Perhaps this giftedness and the way that God created him prepared him for this message to speak on his behalf. Amos, though, was not a professional prophet. As I said, he was a shepherd or a farmer. And he would deny, he would say, don't call me a prophet like you think of the other prophets of old. No, I'm a prophet. I have been called to just deliver this message. And as we open up Amos, Amos is divided into essentially two sections. I won't say halves because it's kind of two-thirds and then a second third. The first two-thirds, chapters one through six, is the words of Amos. And if we read back in chapter one, Amos uh, chapter one, verse one, it says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so it says there in verse one that these are the words of Amos and the things that he saw. And so the second portion, the chapter six through nine, or seven through nine, excuse me, are the visions that Amos saw of this future, of what God was telling him. And so we have his words in chapters one through six, and then the visions in seven through nine. And thematically, Amos is going to teach us or, or, or share with his people and ultimately inform us there's five things that we will learn, I hope, through this study. If you've been in school lately, you have the learning objectives. I think as we went online, all our kids had to see they have the learning objectives. These are the things that I hope and we trust that God would teach us as we study this book over the next few weeks. First, as we just sang about, God is sovereign. It's God's sovereignty that compelled Amos to leave his work and to leave his homeland to go to the northern kingdom of Israel with this message. And God in his sovereignty is going to judge Israel and all of her neighbors and ultimately God is going to judge all of the world. Here the God of Israel we see, but he's also the God over all of creation. And he's saying to the world, I will not be mocked. I am sovereign. The second thing, The sins of Israel will lead to her destruction. Amos speaks against the greedy and the rich and religious frauds, merchants and unjust court leaders. And Israel would fall because of God's judgment against these things. Sins lead to destruction. And we're going to see that in Israel's life. And I pray that we might begin to even uncover some of those things in our own lives. And sin is the cause. Number three, sin is the cause of his judgment. All the problems which lead to the destruction of Israel can be traced back to those sins. Israel, by the way, we know, if you remember, had a privileged relationship with God. 
They were called his children, and yet they forsake all that he told them to do, how quickly they forgot who they were. And so sin does not go unpunished. The wages of sin is death. And we have to learn that. Number four, the day of the Lord is first mentioned in Amos. And this phrase, he doesn't necessarily create the phrase day of the Lord, but we're going to begin after seeing it in Amos. It's, it's referenced throughout the Old Testament. The day of the Lord was looked upon as a positive. They're, they thought that the day of the Lord would come. It would be a day of winning, of victory. Ultimately, though, the day of the Lord, as we're going to see here in Amos, was a day of destruction. And through that destruction, salvation came. But destruction came first. So often in our lives, I think that we look forward to the day of the Lord where we think Jesus come quickly. And we forget Matthew 25, which we just read, that there is going to be a judgment. Yes, we should look forward to that day, but we should also tremble as we think about the day of judgment, that darkness would come that would lead to restoration and peace, but there would be a day of darkness. And finally, Amos, again, thematically, he is a bit of a prophet of doom. He talks about all of the judgment, the destruction that will come, but he's not a prophet of doom. He's a prophet of hope because Israel will ultimately be restored And so while we see, we will see the sins laid out before us. We will see the judgment of those sins laid out before us. We will also see God in his mercy, out of his great love for his people, the covenant that he made with them, restore them. And ultimately, I pray that we might also be restored to a new level of adoration and worship of Christ and of God our Father. So let's look at Amos Chapters 1 and 2, we're going to cover a lot of ground, unlike some past uh, studies as we've gone through. I know you're looking through your pages and you're thinking, oh my, we're going to be here all morning. Now I'll get you out of here just in time for it to rain on you. But Amos is called from his home in the southern kingdom of Judah to go and deliver a message to Israel, as I said, the northern kingdom. And this message is, is delivered, by the way, after God has led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, after Israel has begged God to give them a king, after the kingdom splits, you have the southern and the northern kingdom. And since all All of these things, God has done all of these things, and yet Israel has lost their way, and their sins had increased, and they've increased to a point where God says, I must bring judgment. And similarly to how he looked upon Nineveh, and he had to send Jonah there to warn them of the coming destruction, God is saying, I send Amos, I will call Amos to go and deliver this message of judgment. And what does he say the word of God says? What is the message that he delivers? I'll begin in verse 1 and read through just verse 2. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, that's where he's from, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, two years before the earthquake. By the way, he gives this reference point of earthquake. In a sense, one of the things that we sometimes do when we read our Bibles, we look at these little tidbits of information and we think they're insignificant. Let that just remind you that all of God's word is his word from him. It fits perfectly in history. And the more history and the more science and the more things that we uncover, the more reliable his word is to us. Pastor uh, Pat preached a message about that a number of weeks, probably months ago, about the authority and the the trustworthiness of God's word. But in verse 2 he says, 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. When God opens his mouth, things happen. There is never a time when God speaks and there's no result. There's no, nothing that follows. God never speaks into a void. Ultimately, he did speak, I guess, once into a void. And when he spoke into that void, this world was created. He spoke and the world came into being. He speaks the universe into being. He breathes life into Adam and all of mankind. With a word, raging seas are calmed. He declares on the cross, it is finished, and the sins of the world have been dealt with once and for all. When God speaks, things happen. And God speaks through Amos, and he speaks a strong message of rebuke. And in Amos, as he describes the word, Amos using a lot of, of sort of uh, illustrations, uh, word pictures, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. God speaks, and God's word to you, Israel, when he speaks, guess what it's going to do? It dries out all of the pastures and all of the fields to the tops of the mountains. They wither. When God speaks, things happen. And God is speaking through Amos, and he is speaking a strong message of rebuke. He is roaring against all the sins. When he speaks, he speaks against those sins, and the heat of his roar dries everything up in his midst. I don't know if you've, some of you have been to Kenya with us on our uh, mission trips, or perhaps you've been to, to Africa in another time in your life, and you might have seen the lions. Uh, my, this, this two years ago, we were, or excuse me, last summer we were there, and it was the closest that we'd ever gotten to a lion. Uh, we had a lioness that we don't ever, rarely do we see the male lions, or if we see them, they're always from afar. But this time as we were driving along, it was luckily enough for us early in the morning still, and the lioness had just, were essentially coming back, we believe, probably from their hunting. And a lioness came and walked right across in front of our vehicle, went behind it, and just started kind of pacing with us. And I can tell you that lions look really cute when they're behind a cage. <laughs> they look timid. As they are sitting there, even at Disney, when they're sitting there up on those falsely warmed rocks, so they're always in the same position no matter what time of day or year you visit. Sorry, kids. But that's what's happening up there. Those lions are sitting there. They look great. They're, they're majestic and beautiful. But let me just tell you, when you see one that close to you and your guides are telling you, do not stick your hands outside of the vehicle, I promise you that would lead to bad things, you see and you see the, the, the width of their paws. And these are the lionesses, the female lions, the hunters. And, you, and I, I have not ever heard in real life a lion roar, but seeing the size and the power that existed, hearing a lion roar as I think of Aslan in Narnia roaring and all of the armies falling at his roar, that is what I picture when I hear the Lord roars from Zion. We need to listen. We need to pay attention to what God says. And Amos is saying he is roaring at us. He is not coming to just share just a little nice word. Hey, Ryan, I'd kind of like you to maybe consider like thinking about not doing that anymore. <laughs> That's not the kind of word that God is bringing through Amos to the people of Israel. When he is speaking to Israel, he is roaring. Jeroboam, the ruler that is referenced there in verse 1, 
had led to Israel prospering. The northern kingdom, by the way, in this time, they are living their best life. They are wealthy. There is prosperity in the land. They have taken down other kingdoms at war. and Everything was going great. The strength of the nation was clear. Sound familiar? But that should not have been mistaken. And what was the problem was that the people of God mistaken that for obedience to God. Because everything is going great in their life. Everything seems well. They missed their obedience. They missed, excuse me, their disobedience to God. Under Jeroboam, the people had been led to worship the wrong things. In a view of God's word, the nation was steeped in sin. And so Amos is sent to give this message to Israel. And he is going to give this message to Israel because he had made a covenant with Israel to set them apart, that they would be different than the rest of the world. But before he gets to Israel, as we read these rebukes, these accusations from God, he begins by talking first to the neighbors, the surrounding nations. See, this is what's interesting. It's as if God is saying, I set you apart, Israel. And let me first tell you all of the things that your neighbors are doing who I have not blessed, who I have not cared for, who I have not led out of Egypt, led out of slavery, as he's going to talk about. I didn't do all of those things for all these other, and you're no different. In fact, you're worse because of who I am. It's Father's Day. I think about some of the times when I talk to my kids, and every now and again, my kids, I love my boys. They are great young men now. But every now and again, they'll, they'll ask for something. They'll say, well, so-and-so gets to do this or that. I don't know, dads, have you ever heard that complaint? Well, they get to do this or they get to do that. Or, you know, I, I, how come I can't say that? Or can't, whatever the, the argument is, there's always this, some pushback against why they can't do that. And, and my response is always, they're not my kid. He ain't mine. He can do whatever he wants to do, but that's not what you are going to do. That's not how we roll in this household. That's not how we live. And guess what? If you want to go live over there, enjoy all those blessings. Because I think the blessings that you've had in this household are pretty great. And in a sense, God is saying to Israel, I have blessed you and I've cared for you. I've done all of these things. I've, I've, I've been your God. I've been your father. And look at all of the other nations. They're, you're just like them. You're not set apart God always, when he makes a covenant with his people, he has a, a, a requirement. Now, that requirement is not to, in order to fulfill the covenant because God is faithful and merciful no matter what. He is always the one who fulfills the, his word. But he doesn't do that without calling into rebuke or into question those things that they do, the sins that exist in their life. So he begins speaking and sharing these, the sins essentially of the other nations and so we'll read through these a little bit at a time. Verse 3, he says to the Lord, as he roars, let me begin with all of the countries that surround you. For three, and these are, by the way, this is a poetic speech. Sometimes these are going to be harder to interpret for us. It won't be as clear because of the context one or the way that Amos is using a bit of poetry and sort of uh, illustration to describe for three transgressions of Damascus, verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, 
because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. I will send fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Now before we get to all of these others, and we're not going to be able to work our way through each and every one of them, but one of the things that we see here is we see this for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. And sometimes when we read that, and again, one of the accusations of the Bible is there's some conflict here. Is it three transgressions or is it four, Amos? Which one is it? And essentially what he's describing here is that ultimately God has seen the sins of these people increase. And it's not, uh, there's not even as he shares this, he doesn't share specifically three transgressions or for four. He shares just one or two. And what he's saying is the overflow. I've watched as there were three sins and then a four. Sinfulness was the overflow of these people. They, their lives were consumed with sin. And so as God looks down in his sovereignty, judging, we see that the sin has overflowed in their lives. And so he talks about the iron, the, the fact that they have threshed Gilead with sledges of iron. This is like a farming tool. You ever cut your grass and it just, the blade cuts it off? But imagine that the blade is a bit dull. Do you know what happens to the grass with a dull blade? It sort of cracks and just withers and the tips get brown. It's like just the destruction is great. And so Damascus had been cruel to God's people, to Gilead. And so they were, because of their brutality, ultimately he says that they will bring, that judgment will fall upon them. Skipping down, his, he speaks here to Gaza for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. I will not revoke the punishment. I'm not going to hold back, he says. What do they do? They carried into exile a whole people. They delivered, they, they stole a people and brought them into slavery. Again, for three transgressions of Edom in verse 11 and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he has pursued his brother with the sword and cut off all pity. Or back in verse nine, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the, revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people into Edom. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the Amorites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. He's speaking of these evils that have existed in these neighboring countries. Evils of oppression, abortion, destruction, murder, all of these sins of these people around. And he is saying, I will not hold back punishing those sins. There will be a punishment for those sins. I will deliver justice. See, one of the things that we need to remember, and by the way, children, if you have your notes from your kids' ministry team, that first blank says, God sees injustice. See, we read these things, and as we go and we look at our world as today, as we consider all the things that are happening in the world, we might believe that God is unaware of all that is going on. As we plead for Jesus to come quickly, we might begin to be tempted to think to ourselves, is God even paying attention right now? 
Does he know all that is going on around us, all of the challenges in the world? And what this text teaches us is that God sees all of it. He is not unaware. He sees the injustice that exists. And ultimately, he teaches us, the second blank there, kids, is that God will judge. God will judge. He promises here in each of these verses, if we go back, that there will be a response. I will break the gate, verse 5, the gate bar of Damascus. Verse 8, I will cut off the habitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepters. I will turn my hands against Ekron. Verse 10, I will set fire upon the wall of Tyre. Verse 12, so I will set fire upon Teman and it shall devour strongholds in Bozrah. Verse 14 and 15, so I will kindle a fire against the walls of Rabah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their kings shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Those judgments will come. As we read that, some of those judgments might not make sense. We don't know all those places and those names, exactly what they mean. But what we can know for sure is that God sees the injustice and he will judge the injustice. He will deal with it. And so as we look around our world and we see all of these things happening, we can trust that God will judge those sins. We can wonder how long we can plead with God to make it swift But we need to remember that God will not let one sin go unjudged. And here's what that should lead us to do. It should cause us, friends, to tremble. The gospel is good news, and I'm going to get to that. But before we get to the gospel, we need to recognize that there is sin in the world, and that sin resides in our own hearts, and that sin will be judged. And we should tremble. You see, when we read these messages of God's judgment, we, and really when we read the entire Bible, so often we, we place ourselves in the wrong position in the story. We probably do what Israel likes to do. We think, well, I'm a child of God. I know Christ. I've been redeemed, so I'm good. All those sins that he's talking about, they're out there. That's other people's problems. Those aren't me. See, we put ourselves in the wrong position when we read the story of the rich young ruler who came to Christ and asked what he must do to have eternal life. We think, oh, I'd never be the guy that would just walk away. I'd always, I'd sell everything to follow Jesus. Would you really? Or would you walk away and go pursue and chase after all the things that this world has to offer, thinking that it might bring you hope, happiness, and joy? You know it won't bring you salvation, but at least maybe today would be fun. Or, when we read about the Pharisees, do we think, oh, those are, those are legalists. They're terrible. They missed Jesus as he walked amongst them. And how often we think, I'm never the Pharisee. I'm always the one that's responding to the Pharisees. I'm always the one that's telling the world, hey, it's going to be okay. So often we ourselves are the Pharisees. We're always David and never Goliath or the Philistines. We're always the prodigal son, but we're never the disgruntled brother. We think about these stories and we put ourselves in the wrong place. Most of these things, by the way, are telling us about who Jesus is and pointing to Christ and what he is going to do. And we shouldn't insert ourselves really too often in any of these things. But when we do, we need to realize that it is our sinfulness that will be judged. It's our sinfulness, my personal sins, Ryan's. 
When Jesus is nailed to the cross, he has me in his mind, and he is saying, I'm taking on the Father's wrath for you. The sins will be judged. And it should cause us to tremble. We would be wise to consider our own hearts and realize that we are the sinners that need to be corrected. And God, in his grace and mercy, is giving us a word to remind us that he sees all of the injustice in the world and that we, by the way, might be a part of it. And he sent a prophet to warn God's people and to call us to repentance. Those judgments that come, they come after sin is acknowledged. Lastly, though, we can hold and hold on to the promise that justice will come. I want to look at the sins of Israel as he narrows it down. He first again begins with the uh, nations that are surrounding. Then he jumps to uh, Judah and to Israel. And he, he issues these stronger judgments against Israel. And we're going to spend more time looking at those next week. But to the people of God, he says there's going to be judgment. But ultimately that judgment will lead to a day of mercy, a day of restoration. Look at chapter 2. Verses 9, God telling the people after he lays out all of the sins that they have committed, he reminds them, yet it was I that destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oak. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons and prophets and some of your young men of Nazarites. It is, not in, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. He says, look at all of I, that I've done for you. You're looking at all the sins I've just described of the world around you. He delivers and shares in, in, in verses 1 through nine, 8 all of the sins of Judah and Israel. And then he reminds them, look, it's me. And then this is his promised judgment on Israel. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horses save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. God issues a strong judgment against his people, and he says all of their strength, everything that they hold on to, all that they, they cling to is saying, look, this is who we are. We're the people of God. He says, it's all going to go away. I'll wipe it all out. I will press you down. The stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked. Completely ashamed, by the way, is what he's describing there. Because of their sins. Ultimately, God will judge and God will bring justice. Justice will come. We're going to get to what that justice would look like, what God desires as we open up the remaining chapters. But let us pause this morning and just remember what we read, what Pastor Kyle read for us from Matthew chapter 25, that there is sin in the world, and that sin in the world will be judged. Matthew 25 described Jesus 
It says there in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There will be a day of judgment. And that day of judgment, Jesus will separate those who have been obedient to him and those who have not. And what he describes there is he gives us this picture of all the things that we do, that we go about doing. And Jesus is saying that you're doing these things to the least of these and you're not doing these things to the least of these. There's this separation of people. There will be a day of judgment. And ultimately, it's those of us who are obedient, who recognize our sinfulness and fall on our face before Christ We humble ourselves and we acknowledge our sin and we receive his mercy because it's the mercy that we receive from Christ that compels us to be merciful to the world around us. We will not be merciful and gracious people when we have not yet received it. And that's why we can do it for a season. We can, can, many people in the world can for a short period of time do these things, but it's not the way of life. It's those of us that acknowledge And confess that, yes, there is going to be a day when we're going to be judged for our sins and we're going to fall on our face before Christ. And all of our lives are going to be laid open before us. And what will we fall on? It will be the mercy of Christ alone in that moment. His grace to us. God will judge and he will deliver perfect justice. The beauty for those of us who are in Christ is that as our lives are open before God and he looks at our lives and we recognize and we know that we are going to come up short because of Christ's mercy, we will be declared righteous. Not because we have done anything that is worthy of that righteousness, but because of Christ alone. So once again, let it cause us to hit our knees and worship Jesus, to praise him for who he is and what he has done. So friends, don't be afraid. Don't fear when the judgment, the conviction sits on your heart, the sinfulness that God brings to bear in your own life, is, you become aware of that. Let it cause you to tremble. and Let it cause you to fall on your face and worship Jesus and plead for his mercy. And then as Jesus lifts you up and restores you, let, it, let his grace and his mercy lead you to further worship, to praise him, and let that be the overflow of our lives. Let's pray that that would be so. Father in heaven, thank you for this word delivered by your servant Amos to your people long ago. And yet in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, in your perfection, it still speaks to us today. I pray that everyone that has heard the sound of my voice, whether here gathered in person or gathered with us online, that we wouldn't miss, we wouldn't be too confused by the names and the places that are so foreign to us, but we would hear from you. And we would be reminded that we might not be aware of all of the sins of these people, but that you are aware of sin, that you will judge it. Let that cause us to just tremble before you, to be in awe of your sovereignty, the fact that you will ultimately bring justice. Let that give us hope in a day when we're clamoring for that, we, we desire that. 
We want to see just the weight of all that is going on in our lives here in this world, in this time, lifted. Would you just give us hope as we consider and we remember that you are sovereign over it all, that you are working out your perfect plan. And help us to be like the sheep of Matthew 25. Those who recognize our sinfulness, recognize your righteousness to judge our sinfulness, but also have received your unbelievable grace and mercy. And so let us be a people who overflow, not in sin, but overflow with grace and mercy and kindness to the least of these, not to our friends, not to the ones that it comes easy to, but to the ones that it's hard for us to deliver that kind of grace to. Those that the world might say are our enemies, those that we're angry at, those that that bother us, that get on our nerves, that look different than us, that live differently than us. Let us be that kind of people, Lord. So that when we arrive at your seat and we're bowed before you, we know we won't be perfect, but help us by the power of your spirit to be a people who fed those who were hungry, clothed those who were naked, visited those who were in prison. Ultimately, that displayed your love to a lost and a broken world. Help us to be that kind of people, Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray it all in your mighty name. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.